I recognize that there is a lot of problems in this world that I can solve. And I want to be unapologetic about the ones that I'm going to solve. And it came to a point for me where I was working in tech and software sales and great organizations, but it wasn't the problem I wanted to solve. I want to help people. And ultimately, my own personal experiences, caregiving for elderly parents, going through the process of that, understanding grief, understanding self-care, mental health, that really just came to the forefront for me over the last three years, especially going through something like the pandemic. And I just said, if I'm going to dedicate my entire life, we spend a lot of our life and our careers and our jobs, then I want to make sure that I'm helping people. And so this has been a way for me to combine my brain experience with helping people. And on a fundamental level, I look at the organizations that we have today. We have mega organizations that in some cases are more powerful than some governments. So I believe that if we can really care at the heart of the people that are running these companies to give a shit about things going on in the world, we might have a greater opportunity to make some changes around here. So I want to be the one to help with that. Hey friends, this is your host, Cesar Romero, and you're listening to Beyond the Job Title Podcast, the show that explores the human experiences that shape our professional and personal lives. My guest for this episode is my good friend, Angelique Balding. Angel and I met back in 2014 through the power of travel and community. And at her core, Angel is a connector and a creator. She's all about bringing people together and inspiring positive change. And she's become a driving force in her community, inspiring others to live their best lives while helping to create a healthier, more connected world. In this episode, we dive deeper into what led Angel to pursue her passions for branding, marketing, wellness, and experiences, and become unapologetic about the problems that you want to solve. We also talk about the role model that made her believe that a woman can do absolutely anything that she sets her mind to. We also talk about the value of creating brand experiences that inspire people to live well, the differences between loneliness and isolation, her approach to community building and one-on-one connections, and so much more. So if you are someone that believes in the power of community and helping people live more meaningful lives, then this episode is for you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. One of the dudes from Happy and Hale, he sent me something. Yeah. Uh, Happy and Hale, they're in Raleigh, right? They're like a yeah. he- healthy food chain. Yeah, it was this. Oh, it's, it says loneliness is the tax you pay to atone for a certain complexity of mind. What does that mean to you? Well, I think in that topic of loneliness, when it comes to being remote, I think it's interesting because we're complex thinkers and especially in business, it gets even more complicated. And so I think that having an opportunity to connect with individuals on a one-to-one basis is going to continue to be extremely important. And we need to be able to get out of our heads and, and speak from the heart and be able to speak with one another. But I think it also comes into play as individuals. We can feel lonely because our thoughts can be very complex and it's not always easy to articulate. Have you felt lonely recently? 
I've been okay with being lonely. I think for me, it's more so isolation. I think there's mm-hmm. a difference. I am somebody that's good with being alone. I like being alone. But I mean, I drove myself nuts when I was 100% remote and I'm in this box of a room and my cat is here and my snacks are here and this is all I had. So yeah, that I think wasn't, it wasn't so much of loneliness as it was, it felt isolated. feel the same way. You feel isolated in a room, four walls. And this is my only mode of connection is to speak to somebody through a computer screen. <laughs> right. And a lot of people are in that situation, which that's why I think hybrid, to me, it's like the balance and the middle ground between remote and on-site. And that's why you're seeing more companies do that, like they're doing hybrid, right? Especially in tech. Yeah. So I'm all about that, to be honest, about give people the option, right? Of going to an office, like see other humans physically. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said about, there's a lot more research that's coming out in regards to how people work. And I don't think it's something that's going to be easy to organizationally when you're working with a thousand plus people to be able to put something into practice that appeases everyone. But I think for teams to understand the different personality types and how people work and seeing how you can at least find some common ground in things, I think is another interesting topic because we all work very differently. We all learn very differently. And I think so many roadblocks come from just simply not understanding one another or feeling as though there's one structure to how something should be or one system to how something should be versus being open to the possibilities of needing to change a structure to be a little bit more flexible for individuals. How would you go about doing that though in, in, in terms of personalities? Like, would you recommend people hey, taking a test and sharing that during the interview process? I know you're, you're a fan of the Enneagram, right? I saw that on your LinkedIn. I'm a peacemaker. I think that's number two. I took that test because I really wanted to have a baseline on how to explain my tendencies when it comes to my personality. And the Enneagram helped me understand that I gravitate towards peace and harmony. Mm-hmm. I tend to avoid conflict. And just being aware of that has helped me a lot in terms of I start to notice that I start to go with the flow. I start to not confront, right? And not speaking up my mind. So that's been super helpful. And I'm curious, how do you find out about the Enneagram? And what's your approach when it comes to matching your personality to the business, to a brand, to your job? So I'll start with the first question of my my thoughts on the Enneagram and if, you know, where I heard about it. I guess with the Enneagram, I'm a fan loosely. I think that there's so many different personality equations and tests and things like that out there that you can take. I mean, I've done the DISC assessment. I've done Myers-Briggs. I've done ENFJ. I mean, I'm like a, not a Scorpio, I'm an Aquarius Capricorn cusp. I mean, There's so many things for folks to reach for to want to have a guide to understanding who they are. And I look at the Enneagram and some of those things very similarly where it's like astrology, where it's like, okay, this is helpful in understanding some similarities within traits that that I might might have. However, I think that it really depends on your season of life. I think it depends on where your mood is at when you take these tests. So 
I definitely don't look at them as Bible. I think that they're kind of like those stars in the sky that you can kind of follow in a certain direction and understand high level what other people what other people are like. I do advocate for again, having something like that in a team setting where you can understand your teammates. I mean, there's a little lot of work that have gone into these types of tests and analogies. And so I think when you can get that baseline understanding of, okay, this person is more of a challenger. So I'm not going to be, I'm not going to feel some type of way or be reactive when they challenge me because I know that's just simply who they are. Same thing for, I'm the number seven enthusiast. I guess my wing is supposed to be like an eight or a six. I'm kind of undecided because I can be a challenger, especially in business. But yeah, I mean, I think they're definitely helpful tools for at least understanding the dynamics of your team. I know some teams that uh, this one CEO, she will not hire somebody in a sales role that's not like a seven or like an eight or something like that. So it just depends on the team and how they view it and how strongly they view it. I think it's helpful. I think that you always have to leave room for humans being human and people changing. Yes. And that's what happened to me because I took it as a frame of reference, but I also saw it as an opportunity to have a way to explain my tendencies, but also at the same time, knowing that I can change these tendencies. It's not like that fixed. It's more like, like a snapshot of your, maybe you're going through some growth. Maybe you're going through a season, right? And some tendencies are more prevalent than others. So, but yeah, I don't think it should be taken as gospel. Yeah. And I think on the flip side is even understanding your, the low points of the tendencies of your personalities. As an enthusiast, I'm somebody where I'm like, oh, this is a great idea. This is a great idea. Let's do this. I'm going to reinvent the wheel. We're going to create seven companies by next year. And this is great. And it's like, yeah, well, sometimes you are perceived as being unfocused or like there's too many things that you're trying to do when you just need to simplify. So I think it's also helpful as that guide to see both sides of yourself and then have to face the other side of yourself and be able to call your yourself on your own shit and be like, simplify. Simmer down now. On your LinkedIn profile, there is a slogan and I wanted to ask you about that. And it's, it reads, creating brand experiences that inspire people to live well. What does that mean to you? What that means to me, I mean, I'm a creative at heart. And for me to create experiences, experiences can be broad. It can be the experience of content. It can be experiences of interaction. It can be experiences of, I've hosted retreats. I've done different workshops. I've held events. And so I think when it, for me, it's creating experiences that enable people to connect but even more so connect in a way that inspires them to live well. And when you think about brand experiences, especially, it's one thing to have a product. It's one thing to have a slogan. It's one thing to have a logo. If your brand doesn't have an experience attached to it, it's really hard to create community. And so for me, when I say creating experiences that inspire people to live well, it's looking at brands and opportunities to create branded experiences which bring people together on the common goal of inspiring them to play, to make art, to have self-care, to do the yoga, do the wellness, go to health coaching. And so for me, it's an opportunity to broaden the lens of what an experience could be 
and attach myself to an organization and help them figure out what that path may look like for their customers and their individuals. What inspired you to pursue these passions around branding, marketing, wellness experiences? Was there a certain point in your career where you decided, hey, this is the path I'm going to pursue? Or was there, have you always been that way? I'm curious about that. It's something that came naturally to me. Ever since I was a small child, I've always been interested in the arts. I was very fortunate to have a set of parents that had really pushed me to be more, they advocated for the arts at a very young age throughout my educational career. But it was when I got into college and growing up with a mother who was an entrepreneur and just alpha female that I learned so much from her about the business side of things. And so I found that in college, I was an art major and I switched to an art minor and I found my love for broadcast art and TV, film and media, because ultimately I wanted an opportunity to be able to utilize both left brain, right brain, business and creativity and see how I can infuse the two together. Now, when it comes to wellness, I think that's always been self-care has always been a journey for me. As it is for everybody, I, I see how it can make someone feel. I see how it can brighten someone's day. And self-care isn't, it shouldn't be, and it kind of can be the idea that we have to consume ourselves or we can't consume ourselves to wellness. But when it comes to being able to create experiences, create community, that's where I found this intersection. And for a good bit of my career, I was working with consumer product goods. So I were selling spirits, selling jeans, working Mm -hmm. with really awesome brands. I switched into travel at one point and obviously travel was right up my alley. I got burnt out a little bit in the travel industry. You know, it's like I can go to Cayman 27 times and it seems really exciting. But at the same time, it's like I'm out there working on Seven Mile Beach and it's work. It's hard. But no, I think what I really want to sum up is I've been at a point in my career in brand marketing and advertising and even in business development where I recognize that there is a lot of problems in this world that I can solve. And I want to be unapologetic about the ones that I'm going to solve. And it came to a point for me where I was working in tech and software sales and great organizations, but it wasn't the problem I wanted to solve. I want to help people. And ultimately, my own personal experiences, caregiving for elderly parents, going through the process of that understanding, grief, understanding, self-care, mental health, that really just came to the forefront for me over the last three years, especially going through something like the pandemic. And I just said, if I'm going to dedicate my entire life, we spent a lot of our life and our careers and our jobs, then I want to make sure that I'm helping people. And so this has been a way for me to combine my brand experience with helping people. And on a fundamental level, I look at the organizations that we have today. We have mega organizations that in some cases are more powerful than some governments. So I believe that if we can really care at the heart of the people that are running these companies to give a shit about things going on in the world, we might have a greater opportunity to make some changes around here. So I want to be the one to help with that. Was there a particular moment or lesson that stands out to you? when you were growing up, just watch your mom be that entrepreneur? So my mom was somebody that she made me believe that a woman could do absolutely anything that she set her mind to. 
And she made me realize that when you care, people will care about you. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of my life watching my mom. She was an accountant. So she had her own accounting firm for it was the four or five months of the year. And then in the other months of the year, she worked in the cosmetics industry in sales. And those two experiences were really unique for me because I would see the people that would come in to get their taxes done. And I swear it would become more like a therapy session for them. My mom was given Spirinoff. Here's all the resources you need. You need to talk to Bob. You need to talk to Cindy. I'm going to connect you to Sarah. And like the amount of connect that woman made just by simply helping people. And they took care of her. They took care of her as well. And I think it was also watching my mom. She was very involved in our, in our church parish growing up too. And it was very much a sense of, we helped, she helped everybody. If there was a family going through something, if there was an elderly couple that needed something, she would take me to my aunt and uncle's houses and we'd be doing my aunt's hair curlers, taking her grocery shopping and things like that. And I think from the, the sense of her working in the cosmetic sales, what it also showed me just funny, as I, I talk about this, I see so many parallels between my mom and I now. But she was, she worked for Christian Dior. And so part of her experience with Christian Dior is she was this rep. So she'd do a lot of traveling and her job was to create experiences. So she would put on these mega shows like in the mall or she'd, she'd run out these venues and hold fashion shows and she'd have all these gifts and like people getting their facials done and their hands massaged and she just created so many of those experiences for people that I think I knew that I saw some of myself in her for sure. I mean, it's hard not to. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But yeah, growing up watching a mom that built a business, multiple businesses on helping people, she really made me see that if I focused on community, then I could do anything. Because more times than not, that community, they'll come in and they'll be there right there for you. That explains a lot, Pinjo. I know, right? I'm, like, <laughs> I'm going to have to re-listen to this and just like take it in because it's like, it's true. No, it's that, true. That, experience, that way. Experiences, how to make people feel like they're the most important in the room, community, all those things, you took them from your mom and your environment and now you're applying it into your own life and career. That's amazing. Well, the one other thing that I would mention, though, is, and I've said this recently, is you can't pour from an empty cup. My mom was a phenomenal woman. She helped so many people. But at the end of the day, she kind of put her self-care to the side. And I think that's a little bit more of why I want to focus in on mental health and mental well-being, because I think everyone wants to do good. Everyone, I think everyone wants to do good. But at the same time, that's not something we can neglect and still think we can do good and give to others because it's a really important aspect of work. And I'm just happy to see that recently the Office of the Surgeon General, they just published a huge framework of workplace well-being, resources and ideas on how to implement different practices into the workplace to encourage people to work well. So I think we're finally waking up to the idea of hustle culture just doesn't work. You can't help others if you don't help yourself first. So glad you mentioned that because part of what inspired this podcast is, so Dr. Vivek, he has a book called Together. And in that book, he explains the loneliness epidemic that, that we're going through. And through this podcast, I wanted to explore 
going beyond the job title, like exploring the human experiences that shape people's lives. And that, that book had a big impact on me. And it just, it's very sad because we have access to a tool called the internet, but we're more disconnected than ever. And sometimes even more disconnected to our own selves, right? And I wanted to ask you, how do you approach building community? Being the community is one of your core, core pillars. How do you approach building community and connecting with others? And what would you recommend to someone that wants to feel more connected to their job, to their community, to themselves? That's a great question. A great question. And it reminds me, and I wish I had the book on me right now, but there's a fascinating book. It's dense, it's heavy, but it talks a lot on this subject and it's called The Disappearance of Rituals. And it breaks into mm. how and why we have something like a loneliness epidemic right now. It's because, well, I mean, as they pinpoint is digital connection is not connection. It's, I am literally connected to you via Wi-Fi right now. But it takes longer to build relationships. And so when you ask me about my approach to building community, I really think it's important to take things offline. I think mm -hmm. it's important to take a walk with somebody. Uh, I'll back up there just a second because when it comes to community, I think you have to look at the individuals within that community. You know, it's one thing to go to an event and be like, I'm in community. Unless you make personal connections with every single one of those people in some capacity, then I think it's really hard for you to say that you're in community. You're quite literally around people, but the whole point of it is to create a relationship and you don't create a relationship with just a community. You really create a relationship with individuals. And so I, I think sometimes we've gotten into this pattern, especially with the pandemic, like, yes, being virtual, it saves you a lot of money and it allows you to scale in many ways. But I think it also impacts the human condition when it comes to just being able to be in the presence of somebody, take a walk with somebody, be vulnerable with somebody. So I think when I look at my approach to community, it's looking at subgroups and communities, but wanting to get to know to some level every person individually. And I, I think that's something that commonly can be missed. I think the loneliness epidemic also is We've become conditioned to a virtual setting. I mean, yes, I am far more productive because after I hang up from our interview, I can go into my kitchen and, and start my next thing. I'm not wasting time on a commute. But sometimes those are those mindful moments that I think we need. And we need to rebuild back into our time structure because maybe that time could be taken calling somebody. <laughs> maybe that time could be taken stopping on the way home at your friend's house, stopping in and seeing how they're doing. The other important construct to community that I think can't be missed is showing up for your people. You can't have community if you don't show up. And I mean, there's so much to unpack with that because I also understand that there's, there's some mental things that can hold you back from showing up sometimes too. And I know that there's people out there that struggle and are struggling. But I think that... As things and access to care is becoming more accessible, my hope is that'll start to, to reshape some of that. My hopes, my hopes. Again, you got to kind of push past these things. And I have friends that, some friends that suffer severely from social anxiety, mm -hmm. that showing up is really freaking hard. 
But those are the people that, you know, you check on. And that's why it means you have one-to-one personal relationships because when you get to know those people, you put in more time and effort. And I think that's when community really starts to thrive is when that community knows it's safe and it's supported. How do you approach building one-on-one connections? Is is there uh, questions you ask or things that that you put into practice to to foster this this connections when you're in a community or in a group setting, or perhaps one of your retreats that you've had hosted in the past? What was your approach to cultivating that type of environment where one-on-one connections just come up? Well, I think they happen naturally. I think, especially in a retreat setting, there's so many different activities that you engage in that a lot of times it naturally comes in where I think of one I I went on just recently. It was actually a silent retreat. And oddly enough, I felt more connected to these people at the end, even though I knew nothing verbally about their lives. I knew about how they interacted in this space and even silent cues where we were on a hike and we're silent and we had to get across this river. And it was somebody reaching out their hand to help the person behind them. That is a one-on-one connection. I think about other opportunities where I'm in a networking event and you just, you, you know what it feels like when you gravitate towards somebody or somebody pulls you in and introduces you to somebody. I think that kind of has to be sometimes a non-negotiable about community settings and networking events is like, go introduce people to people. If you see somebody sitting over by the wall, walk up to them because we all have to be those advocates because we want those advocates too. So we need to personally make those efforts to show up for other people. So I think it's a mix. I think that creating those personal connections, I am somebody where when I say, let's have coffee, let's do lunch, I want a walking meeting, I mean it. So I'm going to reach out to you. I'm going to put it on our Google calendars and we're going to go. Even if we do it once, then I know something enough about you so that down the line, if there's a reason for you to reach out to me for something or somebody that I can connect you to, I at least know a little bit about your life story. I love how you operate, Angel. It's all about paying it forward, especially at these typical networking events. They're so cringe, especially for someone that might be attending an event the first time, right? Like overwhelming. You don't know who to connect with. Sometimes it's very loud too, to have like an intimate conversation. So you're yelling at the other person. Right. And what drives me nuts about the typical networking event or meetup is that it's that it's very loud and you can't really have an intimate conversation with someone. Conversations are typically superficial. So yeah, that's my thing against this networking events and meetups. I prefer to do retreats, right? Like, like what you put together, because when you're immersed in that environment with a group of people, man, the connections happen way faster and people let their guards down. Yeah, especially when people all show up for the same purpose. Now, I will say accessibility isn't always there. You want people to be able to come on these retreats. And I think there's an argument to be said about that. But yeah, I mean, the things, these happen naturally, especially when you put people into scenarios that their guards are down, that the the playing field is leveled. And as cheesy as it is, I was in competitive cheerleading. And so we had to go to cheer camp every year. And... Well, one of the things that I loved with our team bonding experience is like some of these things were off the wall ideas. I mean, one in particular I remember is that they had this like between these two trees, they had all these ropes connected and you had two teams 
and one team and the other team, you had to literally pass a person's body through. So we were holding these girls up, passing them through these ropes and you couldn't touch the ropes. So we had to all work together in these creative off the wall. And I don't know if we're going to be doing that in corporate settings, but you get my gist. I mean, it was a fun way where all of us just like barriers down. We've got a task at hand and let's have fun with it. When it talks about paying it forward and doing those things, I think it does for some people. It takes seeing that happen in front of them. Some people are not the initiative takers. And I mean, I get it. I, I do and I don't. In that same retreat setting, I remember there was a few times where there was something that could have been done to help the experience for the other people. And it was a simple task of doing one thing, but no one would do it. So you had to wait for the one person to get up and go take the initiative, go silently ask for a pair of tongs so you can pick up the salad. And it's, that part was kind of amazing to me where people can be very in their own mind about how do I accomplish this for myself versus I'm in a team setting. How do I help the team? So take of that what you will. But I think that at least if you see those people's people in those moments, go and grab them, go get them out of their comfort zone. It's going to make them uncomfortable. I'm sure I've done that to people in their But for the most part, I've had messages from people that would be like, thank you for doing that. Thank you for including me. I have been in settings where you're with a group of people that all know each other and you're the new one in. And rather than being like, oh, what did I? They literally talk about inside jokes and their day versus ever including somebody. And it, I Mm -hmm. mean... Being on the other end of that in the several times, you're like, can I interject here? Can I interject here? It's like, what do you do with this? It doesn't feel good. I've been on that side. And it's like, okay, I'm not cool enough to be included in the inside jokes. Well, Well, exactly. It just like, it shows, I don't know. I have a very, I think a type of way about people that do that because it makes me just feel like some people are just not conscious about Mm. other people. Um, and I, on the flip side, I'm, I'm, I sometimes say I'm plagued with perspective because I can see both sides of things. In some aspects, I know people that are like, I have enough friends. I don't need more friends. I'm happy with the friends I've got. I don't like people or <laughs> in so many words. And I think you got to respect people's boundaries too. So, but I think if you're going to show up to a networking event, you're kind of yeah, no, you're you're there for a reason, right? To connect, to have conversations. At least that's the reason why I, I attend these events, right? It's nice. not so much about whatever the speaker is or the topic. It's about, I wonder who am, am I going to meet at this right. event? Don't go to a networking event with your friend and only talk to your friend the entire time. <laughs> which, is why, which is why yeah. I prefer to go by myself than yeah. to bring a friend because if I bring a friend, I feel forced to be around the friend all the time. Yeah, you got a safety net. And sometimes those friends can be the ones attacking you. You're just like, dude, go meet people here. Yes. Meet Jenny. No, it's true. Now, I'm curious about the silent retreat. What did silence teach you? Well, there's some inner dialogues that it's easy to ignore when you have something like this all the time, when you have something like this all the time. So I think my, my, the biggest silence aspect taught me that I relied too much on my devices, my digital mm. devices. The silence taught me that I will not find the answers in here. 
I have to work through things on my own. And well, not on my own. I mean, there, I have to determine what resources I need to do X, Y, Z. Silence taught me that oh, there's so much beauty in nature that I tuned more into the running water on my hike. I tuned more into the way that the butterflies swam across the waterfall. I tuned more into the birds and how they chir chirped at each other back and forth. I tuned more into being in community without speaking. I tuned more into what are rituals that could set me up for success. I grew up only child, but also like the baby. My siblings are 17 years older than me. My cousins are 20 years older than me. So I think there was a little element of like, I really like being on my own. It's kind of fun. I'm an independent person. I brought my paint set with me. So I just had a good old time painting. I played some golf by myself. I really want to go back to a silent retreat. <laughs> Sounds like a little fun. Oh, man, it was good. At the end of it, I, I got anxiety around picking up my phone. But I remember being like, I could do this for like five days. This is great. Like, sign me up to see you next fall. Like, this is wonderful. Any new habit that you have incorporated as a result of the silent, silence retreat? Putting my phone in another room at 9 p.m. Have you noticed any difference? Sleep. Great. <laughs> That's no, amazing. I've noticed better sleep. I do think that I didn't really grow up with TV. And so I get frustrated about TVs and computers in the bedroom and mm -hmm. phones in the bedroom. It's a sacred space. So... Yeah, I definitely noticed that when I don't have as much digital connection prior to sleep, I sleep better. And I think I, I also realized that in the middle of the night, I'm notorious for waking up for all the reasons, four o'clock, every single time. Four o'clock? Four o'clock. I could be on the East Coast. I could be in Europe. I wake up at four o'clock in the morning. But those are the times that my mind starts going and I want to solve the world's problems. And then I reach for this. And it does nothing and it keeps me up. And so when it's in another room, it makes it harder because the last thing you want to do is get up and be cold, getting out of your cozy bed. So I definitely think that has helped. I am more of a movement meditation kind of person, a mindfulness type person. Meditation is, it's not part of my daily practice yet, but anybody can do anything for three minutes. And so I'm trying to incorporate a little bit more of that into, into my daily habits. I love that. It's a habit that, I'm still working on, but the times where I have put my phone in another room and 9 p.m. as well, 9 p.m. seems to be like prime time for to stop any screen time. But the times I've done it, man, I sleep so well and I wake up the next day. I'm like, let's go. Right. But right. I'm human. So some nights I don't do it and I feel like crap the next day. Yeah. I think it's, it's a topic that I've really been exploring a lot of, especially since this silent retreat, because I will admit, I fully see that I have a digital addiction. When I look at something where we've engineered in, like, the, we have, like, a newspaper. You have an ending to a newspaper. There's no ending in your newsfeed. There's no ending in my Google box. There's, okay, well, usually there is. But when you don't have an ending, it just keeps going. And we've engineered, we're like, this is like, a, this might as well be a third arm for me. Okay, I'm probably going to get carpal tunnel because of this stupid thing. And it's just like, why does this thing exist in our lives? It just, it's everywhere all the time. And 
I think it's something where you even have these same companies that have engineered the dings and the notifications that are now engineering in like, hey, did you know you spent seven hours in your phone today? How about that? You don't feel good when you see that. You don't. And it's all I've been wondering like, okay, how is this helpful? Great to know that I, I spent seven hours a day looking at my phone. But on this topic, I believe that we were not ready for the iPhone. We were not ready for social media. And we're definitely not ready for AI because our brain is still that primitive brain from many years ago. Yeah. And when you have this technology, humans, like if it's convenient, you're going to gravitate towards what's convenient. The phone is convenient. Social media is convenient. And it's also addictive, right? Because you want to, you feel connected. You want to keep scrolling. Do you have that? What's beyond the scroll or above the fold? Yeah. And with AI, it's, I don't know, what side are you on with, with AI? I think you know what side I'm on with AI. I don't know. We're doomed. No. <laughs> We're doomed. Um, I think there's a time and a place. I really hope we can get a get ahead of having regulations. And Yuval Harari, he published something that I thought was great. He's like, we're spending so much time investing in this like alien intelligence. This is the alien invasion is AI rather than investing in human consciousness. And I don't know, a little bit part of me thinks that maybe we're working in tandem because of how much emphasis we're starting to finally put on mental health and mental illness. But yeah, I think that we should be spending far more time focusing on understanding ourselves and humans than, yeah, I don't know, AI scares the hell out of me. Deep fakes scare yeah. the hell out of me. It's the no regulations here. on these things. So when McDonald's and all these other places have robots doing the jobs, then what are we to do? I do think it'll be interesting to see what shift we go into. Part of me is like, I'm going to buy land and I'm going to get farm animals. I'm going to go back to, honestly, though, honestly, I mean, I know I should be like, oh, embrace technology and digital. And, and yes, there's a time and a place. I think chat GPT, go write your emails. Joe, yes, figure out your captions, get your email subject lines. I just really worry about the future and what it holds, especially for our youth. I mean, already we're in a space where, I mean, depression rates and suicide rates, I mean, they're rampant and it really scares me. Why do you think it's broken in the workplace? I think middle management, there's roadblocks left and right with middle management. And I, I think, think that we have so many people that aspire to get to this point and then they're not the ones having to do the work. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of work that has to go into managing teams. Totally. But I think sometimes roadblocks can be created there and there could be blind spots there. And I think the other problem is that I really emphasize, I mean, they have to report to the powers that be. And at the end of the day, they want numbers. They want to know that things are working properly. And I think sometimes the values of an organization and the values of the individuals on those teams can be missed. And I don't know, I struggle when I say that because it's like, Again, plagued by perspective. Those are hard roles when you have to, I know people that have teams of 50 to 200 people. That's tough shit. Like, how are you supposed to manage a team and have order with all these different personalities, all these different ways of working, ways of learning, ways of communicating, ways of listening? Like, it's hard. I think that 
this guy, Mike, he said it. What is Mike's last name? Mike Parks, I think is his name, but he said it best. He said that we have a lot of well-meant well-being where we have these awesome wellness initiatives. Here, here's the Calm app and go use this app and go log into this app and log into this app and track your steps. Well, I mean, personally, you have to have, people have to have a personal accountability to actually do these things. And unless they're enforced, and a lot of that is incorporated into the style of management at those organizations, then what's it really doing? I mean, we're at a point where you have so many of these wellness initiatives available now, and people are at an even more alarming rate claiming burnout. Something's wrong there. So glad you mentioned this. And a couple of things that set out to me there. One of the things that comes up when I talk to leaders is that the difference between being an individual contributor at a company and being in management, they're completely different skill sets. And what ends up happening at organizations is that typically the individual contributor that's like an A player gets promoted to people management. And if you're a first time people manager, they struggle with making that transition because there are different skill sets, right? One is about doing the work and being in the weeds. And the other one is about being strategic and being more about the people that you're serving. Right. right? So, and there's no training, right? They just say, oh, you're promoted. Now you have a team and now you have to perform. Right. And the second thing that stood out to me was, yeah, with those benefits, like I've been at companies where, hey, you have all these benefits, meditation apps, <clears throat> therapy apps, but the habit is not there, right? It's like, yeah, you get access to these apps, but you know, it's not required right. for you to do it. Or I've done the Calm app and weirdly enough, I feel empty. Like, yeah, I meditated, but you know, no. I'm not with people. I'm not sharing with anybody. Yeah. So I think it's a start, but you're right. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done, especially when it comes to, when it comes to burnout. One thing I wanted to mention is you kind of repeated it back to me in the, in the context of middle management and performance and promotion is that we've literally created that as a stepladder award system. Oh, you've been promoted. Now you're going to have to manage teams. Well, be not apologetic. If you don't want to manage teams, like why is that what makes you successful is when you have to manage other people? Why is that our construct of success? Rather... <laughs> Just, I mean, if you're an individual contributor, be promoted on that actual, on that basis right there. I, I don't know. I think that that kind of stood out for me because it's like, we've created that as a success point. I've, I know someone recently where she's a nurse and then she got promoted to being a nurse's nurse director. And she's like, I mean, this is great. Like my schedule's better, but like I have to manage people. I don't want to manage people and I don't, I can't be doing the things. And I get yelled at if I want to try doing the things. And it's like, I don't know, maybe we need to relook at how we view success, view promotions. I don't know. I think that there's some people that are very natural born leaders and some people that get to that point just because it was the next place mm. to go that ladder. Or that's I think we just point. need to explore the ladder. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. And sometimes people might not want to go up the ladder, but they're forced to do it because that's the only path for them, right? Like, hey, you start as an independent contributor, then you're going to move up right. to senior independent contributor, then manager, then VP, 
and you get further out from the work, right? And some people love to do the work. Some people right. don't want to give up the work, but you're kind of forced to do it. And I, I think there's got to be a point where if you're an individual contributor and you're good at what you do, that's awesome. But if you don't care about managing people and you don't give a shit about mentoring people, don't be a manager. Individual contributors are something that we all need because I feel like you get to this management point and then it's just like, I'm going to create all this work because I need these people doing something. So go do this. And it's just like, those are those tasks that can really get to me where it's like, you're creating work to make it look like we're busy mm -hmm. rather than being more strategic in how the work is done and how you're building this team. And I might be a little some type of way right now because I've seen this so recently too, where it's just like, a lot of the roadblocks happen there. And what you said that was so important is they get so far away from the actual work that they're trying to strategize on something that they no longer know anything about and they don't want to listen to the people that are doing the work. That, I think, is absolutely toxic. And I've yeah. seen that in many situations where the people talking to your customers, the people touching your product on a day-to-day -day basis, they are the ones that you should be listening to. So maybe I'll flip this on the head and say, managers need to serve their people, not the other way around. Because for some reason, we view it as the other way. I manage people and they are to report to me. You are serving them. These are the people that are working to know everything about the ins and outs of your product and your people. Listen to them. Yeah, same, same when you're part of a community, right? You serve the community members, right? Right. What are some of the positive changes that, that you see happening? Well, I think to note again, when we're looking at the importance of well-being in the workplace, mm -hmm. I think we're finally getting to a point where, the, oh, I mean, it was a tipping point and a forced tipping point when you have something like the a global pandemic happen where you're like, oh, these are human beings. We've got to care for these human beings because if we don't have these human beings, we don't have an organization. And who knows what will happen with AI and as AI becomes more prevalent in that. But okay. Focusing on the negative again, back to the positive. Well-being is a clear focus in organizations now. And the folks that are the ones that were reluctant, I think they're finally realizing, yeah, we've got to, we've got to make a point to make this in a program in our workforce. I think the DEI and B initiatives are, I mean, I'm not going to go to the negative. I want to focus on the positive. I love seeing <laughs> that has been more of a focus in organizations. I think there's a lot to continue to change and create habits. Part of the program that I'm at Duke right now is all about behavior change. And mm. behavior change doesn't happen overnight. And that's just with an individual. For me to change a habit takes weeks, months. I mean, I am a conditioned individual of 35 years of experiences. Now put a thousand of me into an organization. That's a lot of time that it takes to fundamentally change something. But we are actively making a point to do that and to have those conversations. So I, I think that's a positive change. I like to, there's a movement called conscious capitalism. I think there's a lot of strength in that, especially in a lot of the conversations around social impact, social enterprise, mm -hmm. making money. We need to make money. We live in, a, in an economy. I mean, we have to continue to innovate and find ways to you know, thrive. And so I have no problem with capitalism. I have a problem with shitty capitalism. So if we can make it more conscious and do good along the way, hey, there's a lot of good we can bring to this world and maybe even survive this 
climate crisis, if we can really keep that focus long term. So there's, yes, I think that there's a lot of good that's still happening in the world today. We just don't hear about it as much. Yeah. Cheers to conscious capitalism. Yes. Awesome, Angel. Well, I, I want to do a rapid fire round to wrap up the episode and Ooh, okay. uh, ask, ask you a question and you give me your top of mind 30 second answer. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> Ready? Rolling up. One book that has influenced your life. Nudge. What is Nudge? Who's the author? And well, how would you describe the premise? Okay. I don't want to butcher the author's name because I need to. It is one of my favorite books. One of my favorite quotes from the book is that give people liberty so long as they pay for the harm that it causes society. Hmm. So Nudge is a book by Richard H. Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And I wish I could say who recommended this book. Oh, it was my brother-in-law. It was a book that I believe the Obama administration had their entire you know, administration read. And one simple example to kind of get you in the mindset of it is if you have an energy bill, a lot of a lot of what the companies have incorporated is a graph. So you see what your neighbor does, you see what the other neighbor does, and they see where you're at. That right there is a nudge. That is something that was engineered to help you as an individual start to make a more conscious decision. And I, what I love about that is that it surrounds choice architecture. So I'm going to give mm -hmm. you the liberty to make your own choices. I'll give you the information to help you make see both sides of it. But ultimately, you as an individual are the ones that are going to be responsible for what's to happen. And there's a lot of really interesting examples that they provide. And I will say the middle chapters were all in healthcare. They lost me a little bit. It was ironically at the time where I was helping my parents through a lot of that stuff. So it was helpful in those own ways, but you see just how complex systems can be. And honestly, sometimes how complex choices can be where simplicity is key. But that quote of give people liberty so long as they pay for the harm it causes. Love that quote. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate that. Next question. One of the most worthwhile investments that you have made recently? And by investments, it could be financially, it could be a relationship, it could be physical, it could be an experience. I got two. Real Go estate and education. What about real estate? I think, well, I mean, again, goes back to creating experiences. So I was fortunate to say, okay, like, Either I remodel our kitchen or we're going to go and buy another property and invest in a new community, invest in experiences for our family, invest in creating a place for others to create experiences, especially in the market that we have now. I'd rather my money be there sometimes than yep. completely in a blank. So that was one. And then I started the, the Duke Integrated Health and Wellbeing Coaching Certification Program. I've wanted to do it for many years now, and I'm so happy that I took the plunge because it's, I think I mentioned earlier, it is completely focused on behavior change and how to, honestly, it's rewiring how you communicate and how you listen to help people uncover the answers that are already within themselves. And I really like that approach. I really like that approach to whole health, and uh, I look forward to seeing how I can bring that into the business world. I love that. Love that so much. Well, thanks for sharing. Next question here. Any quote that you think of often or perhaps a, a motto that you live your life by? You can't stop the ways, but you can learn to surf. Ah, so powerful. 
I love it. I mean, life will keep serving you things. But as long as you can roll with the punches and surf through them, there's always going to be a new set of waves. There's always going to be a light at the other side. And I think of the other, as far as like a model that I live my life by, I learned early on is that in those dark moments that you have the light to reflect back on. But when things are light, you have to acknowledge that. And if you don't have gratitude when things are good, it's going to be really easy to forget about those times when things are not so good. So gratitude, gratitude always. And yeah, I mean, I believe in the big guy. So I believe that I can give all my worries to him and he'll help me through a lot. Yep. The big guy's always watching out. Okay. Next, next question. I know you already mentioned one of the habits that you're incorporating, which is like putting your phone outside the bedroom. Any other habit that you have incorporated that has improved your life recently? Make your bed. I used to make my bed, but I stopped. But weirdly enough, I felt good when I made my bed in the morning. <laughs> this might rob my husband would kill me, but it's, I believe this wholeheartedly. Between making my bed and putting my throw pillows back. I believe that there is a fundamental importance to this, okay? Because listen, if there is one thing that I can control in my day, if it is my throw pillows and making my bed, let it be. Put your throw pillows back. Decorate them as you want. But sometimes there's a lot of things in our day-to-day -day lives we can't control. But if I can control my throw pillows, I'll take it. I'd be curious to see what your husband thinks about this. He hates throw pillows. He's like, Men, all men hate throw pillows. I was like, what the hell do you have against throw pillows? They're beautiful. I'll keep my opinion to myself. <laughs> all right, Angel, last question here. Any takeaways that you would like the listeners to absorb as it relates to this episode, as, as it relates specifically to experiences, mental health, well-being? Yeah, I would say I'm going to always go back to you cannot pour from an empty cup. And if I can be encouraging the people to take a moment to look at parts of their life where they're giving a lot to just see where are the parts of their lives that they're giving to themselves. Because a lot of times the parts that we're not giving to ourselves are the parts that we take away from the things that are even more important, like our families and our mental health. So I definitely would hopefully encourage people to take a look at where they're giving a lot, where people might be taking a lot, and just know that there are resources out there. So If, if I could be somebody to lean on to understand what those resources may be, I'm happy to help. Love it. And where can people find you, learn more about your work? Yeah. So I'd say LinkedIn is a great place to start, especially when it comes to my work. My portfolio is Angelique Maria, M-A-R-Y-A. And so I'll share the link with you as well. And then Instagram, Angelique Maria underscore. But yeah, I feel like everything's interconnected at this point. So you'll find all the other things through the one thing. Uh, and I also have Find Your Flow is a web show that I started earlier this year and love asking some of life's greatest questions to really interesting people and sharing perspectives on, on those questions. So yeah, I hope to tune in. If you're, if you, Caesar, or anybody else of your listeners are interested in joining, I'd love to, to have a conversation. Absolutely. And well, thanks so much for joining the show and thanks for being on this side of the mic. Me asking. Yeah. You. <laughs> so it was like... Yeah, super fun. But yeah, Angel, thanks so much for joining. And yeah, I'll, we'll have to do another episode and dive deeper into other topics. But for now, thanks so much. All right. Thank you. And I will look forward to seeing you in North Carolina soon.
Alright, I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for listening all the way through. I appreciate you and I hope that you got some valuable information that you can apply to your personal and professional life. If this story resonated with you and you would like to support the podcast, please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate you and I look forward to serving you in the next episode.